Solving a murder mystery. These cases don't get solved in a vacuum. What Vancouver police are saying about the death of the Tatlow Park caretaker. Startling video of a burning crime scene. How an off-duty firefighter was injured trying to help. And back to masks. I think they feel it's important to protect themselves and their classmates and their teachers as well. Why the end of spring break hasn't ended all mask mandates in schools. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Vancouver police announcing today an arrest has been made in the murder of a park caretaker. Justice Daniel was found dead in his Kitsilano home last December. Grace Key is live with more on the arrest and what we've learned about the man charged. Grace. Yeah, well, we know he's 51-year-old Brett Stephen White. Now, he's from Vancouver, and police say he has no criminal record. And although police say they can't release a lot of details right now, they are hoping that this arrest does provide the community with a sense of safety. Vancouver police believe 51-year-old Brent Stephen White is the person seen in this surveillance video walking on Point Grey Road back on December 9th, the day it's believed 77-year-old Justice Daniel was killed. White has now been charged with one count of second-degree murder. He remains in custody. With this case, though, it's very good in that we can give a little bit of closure to the community, analyze some of their fears. Uh, I know that this case, uh, for some people, shocked the community and caused significant anxiety. And as, of course, uh, right after it happened, we couldn't explain uh, why this happened. Daniel was a longtime caretaker at Tatlow Park near West 3rd Avenue and McDonald Street. He was found dead inside the caretaker's home where he lived. Neighbors say he was a beloved fixture in the area. Saw, saw him up for years. Yeah, he was a wonderful man. He was creative, he was um, quite beautiful with people, and we're going to miss him a lot. We had, like, nice chats. Every time he walked by, he would stop and say hi to the dogs and just, like, be super friendly. He really took care of the neighborhood and would always kind of, like, watch out for everybody. Daniel was a single father and local musician who performed under the stage name Valentino Suede. Police are not commenting on a possible motive at this time, but describe the two as casual acquaintances. White lives in the Kitsilano area and was arrested on Saturday without incident. He does not have a criminal background with us. Uh, he was on our, our system, our prime system, but not for anything related to uh, certainly this case or any other criminal activity. A lot of us remember when that surveillance video came out. Uh, Grace, how instrumental was that in, in leading to this arrest? Yeah, we asked that, and the police said it wasn't actually key to the arrest, but they wouldn't go into details about what was. They did, however, thank the community for their assistance. Chris? All right. Grace Key reporting in Vancouver. Thanks, Grace. Vancouver police are investigating yet another stranger attack in the downtown core. The incident happened just after noon on Sunday near West Pender and Howe Streets. Police say an 18-year-old female exchange student was walking with a friend when a man sucker punched her, 
briefly knocking her unconscious. Several bystanders rushed to her aid as the suspect fled. Thanks to security video, he was identified and arrested a short time later on West Hastings. Police say the 26-year-old was wanted on a BC-wide Mental Health Act warrant and now faces charges of assault and breaching a court order. A charge of attempted murder has now been laid in connection with the stabbing of an RCMP officer in Kelowna over the weekend. The officer was called to deal with a report of people camping on private property in the 1000 block of Ellis Street late Saturday. Shortly after arriving, he received a serious stab wound above the eye. The officer fired at least one shot, but no one was hit. Police say the suspect then began harming himself with the knife. Both of them were rushed to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The ICBC gas relief rebate is meant to help drivers with record high gas prices, but criticism is mounting with the public insurer making billions in profit. As Richard Zussman explained, some say the rebate should have been issued regardless of the price at the pumps. It was billed as BC's solution to rising gas prices. If we go to fill up at the pumps, sometimes it feels like it's a bit of a holdup. But that gas rebate of $110 from ICBC is just political sleight of hand. The cash coming straight from money taxpayers should already be owed. There's going to be around $30 of that $110, ironically enough, will be paid in gas taxes uh, when you go back to the pumps. We continue to have the highest gas taxes The government under fire on Monday in question period, ultimately conceding this cash isn't just for gas. How they choose to spend this money is up to them, and it'll go to defraying costs. Another criticism, drivers of electric vehicles are also getting the rebate, even though they don't need gas. The Liberals suggesting changes to the carbon tax could actually support people directly at the pump. The carbon action credit would be much uh, fairer, but it would actually uh, uh, more uh, provide more relief to low- and middle-income families. The latest update has ICBC with $1.9 billion in profits this year, driven by an increase in investment revenues and a drop-off in claims. Experts say the province should be clear to drivers what this rebate is for. It's the policyholders' money. If they pay too much, they should get it back, either through reduced future rates or uh, a rebate. The rebate makes up just a small part of the ICBC profits, most of the money going to capital reserves. Now that that problem is taken care of, the question is whether drivers on these roads should expect a permanent reduction in rates. It's um, not quite fair now that they've given this rebate to say we're being overcharged. I think the, the rates are, are as best we can get with the information we've got available. More information will be around the corner, but no long-term decision can come until April of 2023. The nature of insurance, meaning an uncertain economic future, could be a pile-up away. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, if you think your budget is suffering from high fuel costs, municipalities are also feeling the pinch. The city of Vernon is asking council for another $270,000 this year to help cover the increasing price at the pump. In Kelowna, the city says it's paying at least an extra $100,000 a month to fuel its vehicles, including transit buses. But at this point, it hopes to cover that cost through reserves. In the meantime, it is looking to find ways to use less fuel.
long range, we're uh, electrifying the fleet and right-sizing the fleet, so decreasing the, the size of the drivetrains in our vehicles. In the short term, it'd be optimizing trips, combining trips, reducing unnecessary travel, but that's pretty typical uh, with how we operate. The city of Kelowna has been monitoring the price of oil on a monthly basis since the war in Ukraine broke out. At least for now, it says it has no plan to reduce services such as transit or street cleaning. Well, for the first time in more than a year, most B.C. students returning to the classroom this morning did not have to wear a face mask. But as John Waugh reports, to the surprise of some families, there's a different set of rules for those who traveled internationally during spring break. Welcome back from spring break. Today's lesson, mixed mask messaging. I gave them the option if they want to wear it or not. They feel it's important to protect themselves. We can manage now. While the school mask mandate was lifted for BC students back from March break, those who traveled out of town can't put away their masks just yet. Lots of folks have been traveling over spring break, and there's a bit of a confusion with the messaging that uh, they're returning to. The source of the confusion, on the one side, you have the BC government telling families, when K-12 schools return from spring break, masks will no longer be required. But on the flip side, you have the federal government saying, for 14 days following entry into Canada, both adults and children must wear a well-constructed, well-fitting mask when in public spaces which also includes schools. I'm not sure that that has really been publicized enough and will be followed enough that it will make any difference. While school districts in the province try to clear up the confusion via emails, tweets and online newsletters, teachers have another concern. There will be confusion and I think the difficult part will be well, what does enforcement look like? Some parents and teachers wonder why the school mask mandate wasn't kept in place until two weeks after spring break to match the federal guidelines that includes trips to the U.S. B.C.'s education minister said those coming back should know the rules. I'm confident that if people were taking the measure to travel internationally when they uh, during spring break that they would have been familiarized themselves with the requirements. Those calling to keep the mask mandate say knowing the rules doesn't always equate to following them. Adding to the uncertainty they already feel as students ease back into school. John Hua, Global News. And here's a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for BC. We have 288 people in hospital now. 48 of those patients are in the ICU. Six more people have died from complications of the virus, including one person in their 50s. And we have 556 new confirmed cases. Keith Baldry joins us now with more. Keith, let's go back to those concerns about kids returning to school without masks and the risk for them uh, and school staff and then families at home. What's the latest when it comes to vaccination? A lot hasn't changed for weeks now, Sophie. So basically, the older your school kid is, the greater the chances he or she has been vaccinated with two doses. The younger, though, the less chance they've been vaccinated. Here's the update as of yesterday in terms of the age groups. Five to 11-year-olds, just 56% have received one dose, just 37% two doses. But teenagers, different story, 89% with one dose, 87% with two doses. And again, you look at uh, sort of the individual ages on the bottom and top of each age cohort. 
the six-year-olds, very low rate, 51% and 33%. But it jumps as they get older to 65 and 45. Again, 13-year-olds at 85 and 82%, but 17-year-olds basically matching adults when it comes to vaccination numbers, 94% one dose, 91% two dose. Basically, the situation really hasn't changed for weeks. So if we, we seem to have run in a wall into a wall when it comes to vaccinating five to 11-year-olds, we still have yet to exceed 200,000. Uh, kids were at about 196,000. We were basically at that number this time last week. It's really not moving the needle when it comes to younger kids getting vaccinated. That can become a potential problem when you see uh, a sixth wave now washing over parts of the world and even cases on the uptick in places like Ontario. We're not out of the pandemic yet. If your kid isn't vaccinated, it's been your interest and their interest to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Wonder what it'll do to uh, get parents to take their kids in. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Keith. An international group of researchers led by professors at UBC says a compound delivered by a nasal spray is highly effective at preventing and treating COVID-19, at least in mice. The compound is known as N0385. And in an article published in the journal Nature, researchers say it's effective in treating all of the known COVID-19 variants of concern. Researchers believe it opens the door for the development of a COVID-19 nasal spray for humans. New details emerge from a shooting and vehicle fire on Friday. It turns out an innocent man who was seriously injured trying to help was an off-duty firefighter. What we're learning about his condition next on the News Hour. <laughs> oh, wow! The slap heard around the world how Hollywood is reacting to what happened at the Oscars last night, later on the NewsHour. And a young designer honors her Ukrainian grandparents with a fundraiser you can wear. Slava sweatshirts coming up. Right now, though, Surrey RCMP are investigating another apparent shooting in that city. Police were called to the scene in the 10700 block of City Parkway just after 1 p.m. There they found bullet casings and other evidence that shots had been fired. But so far, there's no word on any victims or suspects. If you witnessed the incident or if you have dash cam video, contact Surrey RCMP. An off-duty Vancouver firefighter is in hospital, badly burned while responding to a vehicle fire in Port Moody. Massimo Sarantola suffered serious burns Friday when he spotted a burning car. He grabbed a garden hose and rushed in to help. Krista Dow has the story of the man who's being described as a hero. An explosion so powerful it shook this quiet Port Moody neighborhood. Residents duck for cover. The flames just got like big really quickly. Conrad Murray was first on scene, jolted by the force, fortunate to get away. A neighbor not so lucky. And I was probably over there, uh, about 30 meters from the car, um, when it exploded. And it went out the side, um, so where he was. I didn't realize at the time that he had actually been injured, um, but I saw like, yeah, he, he looked, it looked bad. The firefighter has been identified as Massimo Sarantola, an 18-year veteran of the Vancouver Fire Service. He wasn't on duty when he was injured, springing into action with a garden hose to try to put out the fire. And all of a sudden it just exploded and he wasn't very far from the car. And I figured, wow. Sarantola is being treated at Vancouver General Hospital. He has a long road to recovery ahead. I had extensive burns, uh, some second and a lot of third degree burns to him. He's very fortunate, uh, but I'm sure he's in extreme pain right now and it's going to be a long healing process. 
The chief says it's basic instinct for firefighters to answer the call, and she, like others, are praising his heroic actions. They're not just uh, firefighters by day. Uh, they, they live and breathe it. He is a hero. He's a, or a community hero. The blast is believed to be connected to a shooting in Coquitlam. Krista Dow, Global News. Just ahead, pressure on the Pope. Local First Nations at the Vatican trying to get an apology from the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And a brand new early warning system that could give us precious seconds when the big one hits. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Keep in mind, though, you do have some southbound lane closures during the overnight hours for bridge joint maintenance. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Children cannot learn when they are hungry. Food insecurity also affects their mental health. That's why Global News and the Grocery Foundation are partnering for Toonies for Tummies and nourishing children in countless communities. Donate today to Toonies for Tummies in-store or online. The first of four historic meetings with Pope Francis in Rome today for Inuit and Métis members of a delegation from Canada. 32 Indigenous elders, leaders, survivors and youth are taking part in a series of sit-downs organized by the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. Nithu Gautertra reports from Vatican City. But if he is willing to walk with us, then we'll be willing to walk with him. Symbolic of the church and Métis people walking together, historian Mitch Case preparing to present these red elk hide moccasins to Pope Francis. And surrounded by uh, our colors, the colors of the Métis flag, um, and then uh, a, subtle, a subtle reference uh, to, the, to the church uh, in, the, in the beadwork there. And while taking these steps is anything but easy for survivors. About to share their stories of suffering with the head of the Catholic Church, they boarded the bus and entered the walls of Vatican City, prepared to push for change and reclaim their power. What some call the journey to justice began with a Métis elder-led prayer in the Dene Michif language. Whatever happens here today and whatever doesn't happen here tomorrow, the fact that our elders are speaking will only propel our nations forward in a, in a very good way. The Métis delegates sharing those initial reactions just after their meeting with Pope Francis and as the Inuit delegates got set to head in for their one-on-one -on -one with the pontiff. We would like to see more immediate action. In a joint news conference later in the day, Inuit members making clear what needs to happen now, including paying out the already committed tens of millions in funds that have yet to flow and personally intervening in the case of a French priest accused of sex crimes in Nunavut. We ask that uh, the Pope speak with Father Rivard um, directly and ask him to go to Canada uh, to, to face the charges that he is up on in Canada. But in all, like the sound of these Alberta fiddlers who played for the Pope, the general sentiment is day one of monumental reconciliation-focused meetings were positive and productive. Nithu Garcha, Global News, Vatican City. And we understand these stories may be triggering for our viewers, and there is support available for survivors and their families. The number is toll-free and operates 24 hours a day, and you can speak in confidence. 1-800-721-0066.
The Prime Minister is set to visit Williams Lake this week, where an investigation found evidence of close to 100 children buried at a former residential school. Ground-penetrating radar found up to 93 unmarked graves on the site of the now-demolished St. Joseph's Mission. The Williams Lake First Nation says it wants to discuss the federal government's role in residential school investigations and Canada's commitment to the goal of reconciliation. What are we trying to accomplish uh, by having him here? I mean, not only do we want to showcase Williams Lake First Nation, Kirbuchakotan, but you know, we, we also want to showcase the Sequitman people that reside here. Uh, we also want to, you know, get commitments to that ongoing investigation and that work that continues to need to be done over at the St. Joseph's Mission site. The Prime Minister's itinerary shows he's scheduled to attend a private event in North Vancouver tonight in celebration of Nowruz, the Persian New Year. Still ahead, extreme generosity. I knew that I just wanted to get involved and my mom said, you know, we can't sit on the sidelines. A mother-daughter design duo doing everything they can to support the people of Ukraine for very personal reasons. And double whammy, why scientists are learning from patients who have the flu and COVID at the same time. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. Traffic is steady in both directions. Just recently cleared a crash southbound past the south end. And traffic is fully recovered. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Ukraine's president says his country is ready to discuss neutrality in upcoming peace talks, even as Ukrainian forces appear to be winning back some ground from Russian forces. At the same time, images from Mariupol show the devastation of that city, which has been a major focus of the Russian offensive. Aaron MacArthur has the latest. Fighting raged across Ukraine again Monday. More than a month into this war, Ukrainian forces appear to have done more than just hold their positions. Reports indicating cities north of Kyiv have been retaken. In recent days, Russian military leaders have signaled there may be a change in tactics, focusing efforts on consolidating control in eastern parts of Ukraine. Key to that strategy is the southern port city of Mariupol. The mayor pleading for an end to the worsening humanitarian crisis there. An estimated 5,000 civilians have been killed. More than 150,000 people remain trapped in the city. This woman says she doesn't want to leave her home, but there's no place left to live here. As Russian and Ukrainian negotiators arrive in Turkey, compromises have been floated. Ukraine's foreign minister has stated the country won't budge on Russian territorial ambitions. But President Zelensky suggesting Ukraine could make compromises on its neutrality and admission to NATO. There are reports suggesting several Ukrainian negotiators, as well as Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, showed symptoms of poisoning earlier this month after an initial round of talks. An added layer of concern heading into talks scheduled to begin Tuesday. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. 
A Kelowna woman says the past month has been filled with growing fear and anxiety for the safety of her family and friends in Ukraine. Maria Tokareva moved to the Okanagan three years ago and says she's devastated by what's happening back home. She's now relying on text messages and video chats for reassurance her mother is still safe at her home in western Ukraine. She's also keeping track of which cities and towns have been attacked and reaching out to friends and relatives in those places to make sure they're all still okay. Yeah, so what she says, they have basically the air raids day and night. And the previous few days were really difficult. They had air raids eight times a day. And she said there are most time of the day. Um, yeah, and um, she says it was really loud outside. Maria's mother is also suffering from COVID at the moment and has set up a makeshift bomb shelter in her kitchen while she isolates from others. Well, when tanks started rolling into Ukraine, people around the world found themselves wondering how they could help. And some got very creative. As Kylie Stanton reports, a BC mother-daughter duo turned to fashion. Spruce Grove, uh, Alberta, Ottawa again. The orders are coming in as quickly as they're going out. We're going to be going through all of this. This stack of requests proves something happening so far away can hit very close to home. My great-grandparents were from Lviv, so I knew that I just wanted to get involved. And my mom said, you know, we can't sit on the sidelines. We have to do something. It was this video that sparked the idea. President Zelensky would make his appeals walking outside um, when war is going on. Sorry, I could well up on this one. He's so brave and the people are so brave and we are cut from that stock. And so we're going to help. To sign off. This one is Slava Ukraini. Providing inspiration. So I thought maybe I should just put together, you know, some designs, see what happens, if there's a demand. So this is kind of what we've got. And in a matter of weeks, it's becoming difficult to keep up. Selling out here at Extreme Clothing Boutique in Delta. Bye-bye. And online. We're low on a couple of the larges. While word spreads on social media. Seeing that was like surreal. Photos of Slava sweatshirts are being tweeted and retweeted by accounts with massive followings like Room Raider. To be honest, I don't think it's really sunk in yet, but the biggest thing is just spreading more word about the cause. Aside from the cost of production and shipping, all of the proceeds from the merchandise are going directly to the Ukraine Humanitarian Crisis Appeal and the National Ukrainian Bank. And while the donations now in the thousands continue to climb, they're hoping to be able to give even more by filling the orders in the most cost-effective way possible. So right now it's an open call, any printer. The better pricing we get, the more we can give. We will do whatever we can to get money to Ukraine. Kylie Stanton, Global News. From sweatshirts to suds, two Okanagan breweries have come up with unique ways to raise funds for Ukraine using a traditional Ukrainian Christmas dish to make beer. Backknife Brewing and Unleashed Brewing are using kucha, a wheat dish with honey and poppy seeds. In Ukrainian tradition, the dish would be thrown at the ceiling, and the more that's stuck, the better the family's luck would be. Suppliers donated some of the grain used to make the beer, so the brewers can donate as much as they can to Pravda Brewing in Ukraine. Pravda Brewing put out a call 
just as the bombs were dropping initially, they were basically turning their bottling production facility into like a Molotov cocktail production facility. And they've opened up all their recipes and all their graphics to the public. And they put the call out to make beer, send us the money, we can put it into action right away. The special collaboration between Unleashed Brewing and Jackknife will be ready to hit taps by the end of April. Well, the number of people coming down with the flu is on the rise, and there are cases of people being infected with both COVID and the flu at the same time. Research is now being done on those hospitalized patients to determine the severity of the impact. After COVID restrictions around the world nearly wiped out the flu last season, the influenza virus is back, and for some, it's a double whammy. I think if you're unlucky enough to get COVID and flu at the same time, what our evidence tells us is that you're at markedly increased risk of severe illness. Researchers in Scotland, England and the Netherlands studied more than 300,000 adults hospitalized with COVID within the last two years. Nearly 7,000 of them had COVID along with another viral infection. 227 patients had both COVID and the flu. And Professor Kenneth Bailey says those patients were in the most danger. We found that if you have COVID and you also test positive for flu in hospital, then your risk of dying is doubled and your risk of needing a life support machine or a ventilator is quadrupled. One, two, three. Doctors say because both viruses like to attack the same part of the body, the throat, behind the nose and down into the lungs, testing for the combination is crucial. I think the important message for doctors is we should test patients in hospital for both COVID and flu. As both viruses circulate, researchers expect the mixed infection to become more common and say anyone offered vaccines against COVID or the flu should get them. Tina Krause, CBS News, London. Up ahead, an Oscar winner loses his composure. <laughs> oh, wow! The fallout from Will Smith's slap and the apology some say is too late. Also ahead, early warning, a new system to tell us when an earthquake is coming before you can even feel it. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Well, Canada has taken another step toward having a full earthquake early warning system similar to the one on the west coast of the United States. Ted Chernecki shows us the latest new technology that could warn us about quakes before the shaking even starts. It was this day, 58 years ago, when residents in Alaska were dealing with a 9.2 magnitude earthquake that struck the day before. An estimated 115 people died in what is still the largest earthquake ever recorded in the United States and second strongest in the world. In Port Alberni, around midnight, the first 2.4-meter tsunami hit, followed by a 3-meter wave, 65 homes were washed away. We are seeing um, seismic records from a seismometer, um, an earthquake early warning seismometer that is located inside the room behind here. Here is the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal, where the first of some 400 seismometers went online in Canada's earthquake early warning system. The ripples spread like ripples in a pond. Canada is late to the game as the American Northwest has had its shake alert system running since May last year. This is very exciting. In two years, we're going to be able to send out those earthquake early warning alerts 
which can provide seconds to tens of seconds of alert before the strong shaking arrives. The good news is it'll all tie in with the American system. We will be using the same software that they're using in the States, which helps because we're going to be sharing data across that border. And like the American system, you'll get an orange-like alert, probably on your phone. You'll only get seconds to take action, but those would be key seconds. I know that people's first reaction is often confusion, not knowing whether it's an earthquake or something else altogether. With this system, we will take the guesswork out of the initial response. Perhaps enough time to trigger trains to slow down, stop traffic going onto bridges and into tunnels, divert incoming air traffic, allow surgeons to stop surgeries, close gas valves automatically, even open fire hall and ambulance bay doors. The technology senses that first seismic pulse, the one that precedes the damaging shockwaves. How many seconds warning you get depends on how far away the epicenter. Until it's fully operational, keep an eye on your pets. Ted Chernaki, Global News. The cats know. They do. Mm -hmm. Well, you're probably familiar with the annual Victoria flower count, but UBC scientists are now asking people around the world to track cherry blossoms to help with their climate research. A lot of them out there right now. The competition involves residents of four cities famous for their cherry blossoms. Vancouver, of course, Kyoto, Japan, Washington, D.C., and a town in northern Switzerland. 81 contestants are tasked with predicting when their trees will be at peak bloom and win prizes of up to $5,000. There's been what appears to be a slowing of plant responses to climate change, specifically in their leaf out and flowering. And we've been digging into it for the past several years to try to better understand that slowing. And what we've come to find is that it really depends on the model you use. And so we need better models. The researchers also hope the competition will promote awareness of climate science. The results will be announced in May. Seen a lot of people taking uh, pictures of those cherry blossoms lately. I've just been sneezing. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> the allergies are definitely a problem. But yeah. wow, it's been beautiful out there. And some beautiful blue sky and sunshine this afternoon too for us. There's Christy and she's got the forecast. Thanks so much. So yeah, big turnaround today after a gloomy start to the day with rainfall and fog. And then we turned around nicely. You can see the blue sky and the beautiful sunset that we're about to see. Uh, but the blossoms are in full bloom. I had to take a number of shots today just because they were, they're so full right now here in North Van. But yes, my little guy's also suffering from allergies, Sophie. So uh, I can uh, tell you it is not fun. And especially when you're a little younger. Uh, here's a quick look at the record highs for today mild across the region 18.1 in trail and sparwood hit 15.4 so really that southeastern corner of the province very mild today 15 in through nanaimo same for port alberni we were just above seasonal for this time of year at 13 but you can see a Suyus and nelson also hitting close to 18 degrees there uh, so nice and mild across the area that's well above seasonal now we do have a few showers that are lingering but they're definitely pushing out that will continue to be the case in through southeastern bc we've 
We've got beautiful sunshine on the way for much of the province tomorrow, but a front is going to shift it towards the uh, coast. And so that is going to bring in a few showers to Vancouver Island by the afternoon hours. For our region, though, I'm expecting a dry day. It's not until sort of the late evening hours that we could see those showers push into our area. Also drying through the interior regions. We're not expecting that moisture to shift into your area until Wednesday. And even at that, it's only a chance of showers. So for our region, dry tomorrow, but increasing cloud. We are going to see showers, though, tomorrow night into our Wednesday morning. And then we come out of it again on Wednesday afternoon back to sunshine. That's the type of pattern that we're going to see this week, a back and forth. We'll take it, though, compared to the nonstop rain it felt like we had during spring break. Another shot of those beautiful spring blossoms. Don't forget, they're both cherry and plum. A lot of people get uh, a little frustrated when we only call them cherry blossoms. There's a lot of plum blossoms out there also. Back to you guys. The plum people. We don't want to leave them out. I'm I'm not surprised they brought it up, and Mm -hmm. we're glad they did. Thanks very much, Christy. (laughs) We're pro-plum. We're (laughs) pro-plum. And cherries. Here's Squire now with a look ahead to sports. Squire, how you doing? Good. Good to have the family back together. Thank you. Uh, Okay, so, of course, Canada booked itself a spot in this year's World Cup yesterday by beating Jamaica. Now, after the game in Toronto, there was this great exchange between the players and the fans. Watch. It was awesome to watch. And how about this? The Oscar smackdown. Everyone is still talking about possible repercussions for Will Smith, even after his apology. All right, Squire, what do you have for us? Well, we'll start with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, It doesn't have quite the same cachet as when the Hughes brothers play against each other. But tonight, the Shen boys are facing off in St. Louis. Luke Shen of the Canucks, Braden Shen of St. Louis... Both of them have Stanley Cup rings. Vancouver finishing off a four-game road trip where they had been better, much better, than most figured they would be. And because of that, they have kept themselves in the playoff picture. Just three points from a wild-card spot, four from third place in the Pacific. Let's go to San Luis where Quinn Hughes and the Canucks trying to win one more before they head home to play the Blues again on Wednesday. Will Lockwood with a chance in the first period? No. Unfortunately. Now... Blues with a chance, and it's a weird bounce actually off Will Lockwood's stick, and it ends up being Marco Scandella who gets in the blue paint and jams it home ahead of Lamico to make it 1-0 for the Blues. Then, two-on-one here for St. Louis as Connor Garland loses the puck, and four Canucks are trapped in the St. Louis zone. It's David Perron, and he has a great shot. And yes, that is Yaroslav Halak starting this game. Can't blame him on that one. That's brilliant. Okay, so 2-0. Second period, the Canucks bring it. But Billy Huso will not allow anything to go past him. Two saves there off Garland and Tanner Pearson. Then Vasily Pod Colson has a chance here. Nope, he stopped too. Elias Pedersen has a chance, but he is also stopped by Huso, who is literally unbeatable in the second period. So to the third we go, and you don't want to start the third period this way. They all forget about Vladimir Tarasenko, the guy over there, right there. Shouldn't even got that rebound. 
Shen was out of position there. Anyway, 3-0 at that point. Canucks get a 3-on-1 here. And it's Brad Hunt. Nice shot. Gets the Canucks at least on the board, so they might be able to make a rally. We'll see. Later in the third, 3-1 now for St. Louis. Well, there are numerous heroes for Canada's men's soccer team qualifying for this year's World Cup from head coach John Herdman, who turned the program around to all the players and goalkeeper Milan Borian, whose family immigrated to Canada in the year 2000, which is something he often speaks about when discussing how important Canada finally making the Men's World Cup for the first time since 1986 is. Canada should be proud. I mean, after 36 years to do something like this, you know, it's not just for us right now. It's for our future kids that uh, in the future years that they're going to be able to continue this journey and everything. So... I'm really proud to be Canadian. I'm really proud of these guys. I'm really proud of Canada soccer. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Thank you, Canada, for bringing me here, bringing my family here, giving us new life, uh, new experience. I mean, just everything. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope I give, uh, give Canada back the uh, same as they gave it to my family. And to show how good Canada has become, they had to play the last five qualifying games without their best player, Alfonso Davies, still recovering from an enlarged heart caused by COVID. But he was watching his team at his house, clinching his spot in the World Cup, and it brought him to tears. He rearranged his furniture while he was uh, <laughs> celebrating as well. Uh, the great thing is he'll be ready, hopefully ready to go in November. Now, the qualifying tournament is not done. Canada has one more game Wednesday against Panama. Then they're going to, uh, they're going to want to win this game, even though they're already in, because it'll give them a chance of having a higher ranking going into Friday's World Cup draw, which is roughly 9 a.m. our time. 32 teams are divided into four pots eight teams in every pot, and it's based on world rankings, except for the host, Qatar or Qatar, gets in pot one automatically. Canada right now is on the bubble of pot three or pot four. Being in pot four means all the teams in your round robin group would likely be higher in the world rankings, except for Qatar, which is actually lower than Canada. So if Canada can get in the third pot, it means at least one team would be lower in our group. Speaking of soccer, when Canada's women's team plays Nigeria at BC Place on April 8th and at Starlight Stadium in Langford on April 11th, they will have Christine Sinclair in the lineup, a chance for BC fans to give some love to a BC-born and raised legend. And not only Sinclair, all 22 of the players who won Olympic gold for Canada in Tokyo are coming out for these two games. That'll be fun. Mm-hmm. There you go. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Squire. Up next, the slap and the apology. What Will Smith says today after last night's Oscars drama. Well, it's the slap that stunned everyone watching Sunday's Oscars and left them wondering, did that really just happen? Will Smith issued a full apology late today, and we'll have more on that in a minute. But first, Global's Eric Sorensen has more on the altercation that unfortunately stole the show at the Oscars last night. By the time Will Smith got his Oscar for Best Actor, he had already upstaged himself and the entire ceremony. 
Earlier, comedian Chris Rock poked fun at Smith and then at his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith's baldness. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. Will Smith laughed. Jada rolled her eyes. But then... oh A truly shocking moment. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Smith left no doubt it was no joke. A pall hung over the ceremony and probably over millions of viewers. Co-host Amy Schumer joked later. There's like a different vibe in here. It was a night when so much was going right. Coda, about a child living with her deaf parents, won Best Picture. Ariana DeBose won for Supporting Actress and reassured those questioning their own identity. Oh, queer, openly queer woman of color and Afro-Latina who found her strength in life through art. Then Will Smith's victory that should have celebrated his groundbreaking career was instead an awkward, seeming rationalization for slapping Chris Rock. People disrespecting you. And you got to smile and you got to pretend like that's okay. Reaction in the entertainment world was swift, noting that Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia, which can cause hair loss. Sophia Bush criticized Rock. Punching down at someone's autoimmune disease is wrong. Mia Farrow wrote, it was a joke. Jokes are what Chris Rock does. And Rob Reiner posted, Will Smith owes Chris Rock a huge apology. Really disturbing. The memory of that, the experience of that is dominating all the other achievements. In the end, Smith apologized to the Academy and fellow actors, but not to Rock. L.A. police say he did not file a report, so no charges are pending. Smith said he hopes the Academy will have him back, but some question whether he should even keep his Oscar. The Academy Awards have always wanted to leave the world with something to talk about the next day, just not something like this. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. And Will Smith has now issued an apology to Chris Rock. That's right. In a statement he posted on his Instagram, Smith says, quote, violence in all forms is poisonous and destructive. He calls his behavior unacceptable and inexcusable and says a joke about his wife's medical condition was too much for him to bear. He also tells Chris Rock he was out of line and is embarrassed by his actions. Smith also apologizes to everyone who was at the ceremony and watching it on TV. He says he regrets that his behavior has stained what has otherwise been a gorgeous journey and calls himself a work in progress. Well, it had us talking anyway. Certainly did. Nothing from Chris Rock yet about it either, really. I'm sure he's still stunned by it. <laughs> Bet he is. You might have a fat lip and can't talk very well right now. That's a good point. That could be true. All right, enjoy that late evening sunshine. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great evening. Good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.